It's Unrelated Things. Greetings and welcome to episode number 15 of Unrelated Things. This is the podcast where I talk about things that interest or irritate me that I've seen in the news or read on the web lately and where I share some of my favorite things with you. You can find out more about Unrelated Things or you can make a donation at unrelatedthings.net. You can follow the dollar sign on unrelatedthings.net to find our affiliate links where you can support Unrelated Things by buying things that are unrelated, including flowers, music, batteries, trampoline parts, and anything on Amazon.com. If you want to provide feedback, you can do that at unrelatedthings at gmail.com, and you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. On to the narration and navigation. My top pick for episode number 15 is solar power, and it's actually the growth in solar power in 2013. This is a story from Katie Fehrenbacher. Solar power crashed its way onto the U.S. power grid last year and is now fundamentally changing the makeup of how energy is being produced and consumed. Essentially, it's becoming a mainstream power source. According to a new report from the Solar Energy Industries Association and GTM Research, solar power had another record year in 2013 with 4.75 gigawatts of solar energy systems installed, including 2 gigawatts in just the fourth quarter alone. That made solar the second largest source of new electricity generation in the U.S. last year, only behind natural gas. New natural gas made up almost half of new electricity built out in 2013, and solar made up about a third of new electricity. Wind delivered about 7% of the new electricity, and new coal power only made up 10% of the total. The rate of growth in solar has been dramatic. More solar has been installed in the U.S. in the last 18 months than in the last 30 years, according to the report. Um, Where I used to live in Vermont, just up the street from me, there is quite a, a... decent-sized new solar installation, um, some some big 12-by-12-foot uh, 12 panels which uh, rotate to track the sun um, uh, alongside a, a restaurant up there in Vermont. So it, as I drive through the, the roads uh, of Vermont, um, I do see quite a few of these smaller, uh, like small business-sized um, solar installations. So it's really good to see solar growth uh, continuing and increasing and becoming a more significant part of the mix of electricity production in the U.S. All right, cool. Story from BuzzFeed by Miriam Berger. The Ebola virus has killed at least 78 people, and I believe that total is now up over 100 people in West Africa, and it is spreading. 
An outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus has killed at least 78 people in Guinea, including four healthcare workers, and at least three in neighboring Liberia and Sierra Leone are expected to have died from the disease contracted in Guinea. This geographical spread is worrisome because it will greatly complicate the tasks of the organizations working to control the epidemic, said Doctors Without Borders uh, Guinean coordinator Mario Luigi. No, not Luigi. It's actually Mariano Lugli um, calling the outbreak an unprecedented epidemic. Ebola is a tropical virus that causes hemorrhagic fevers bleeding inside and outside the body, and related ailments including muscle pain, vomiting, diarrhea, and organ failure. The virus is highly contagious and has no known treatment. The disease often spreads from wild animals to humans and then to other humans via contact with infected blood, feces, sweat, and contaminated corpses. Ebola has killed more than 1,600 people since 1976 when the disease first broke out in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This latest outbreak is the first in West Africa. The Zaire strand of Ebola, which has been reported in Guinea, is the most deadly, killing 9 out of 10 of those stricken, according to the World Health Organization. So far, Guinean authorities have reported 122 cases of Ebola, in addition to the 78 deaths. Are you kidding me? From HuffingtonPost.com, some good news out of a bad situation. There were no U.S. combat casualties in Afghanistan in the month of March, only the third month in over 12 years of war in which there were no combat-related U.S. deaths in the country. It was also the first time since July 2002 that there were no U.S. combat fatalities anywhere. Pentagon data as of Monday, March 31, confirms that the last U.S. deaths from the war in Afghanistan were in the month of February. However, two coalition members died in March, according to the website iCasualties. Thus far in 2014, 14 Americans have died in the war in Afghanistan. The only other months to have no U.S. combat deaths in Afghanistan were January 2007 and July 2002, which also was a month in which there were no U.S. combat fatalities at all. The United States has been in Afghanistan since October 2001, making it the longest war in U.S. history. So a tiny silver lining and a tiny small step. So, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to the month where there are no U.S. Um, casualties among U.S. military personnel, as well as no casualties caused by U.S. military personnel. When that month arrives, I think we'll have hit a big milestone. Oh, boy, howdy. When I say Hanes, if you live in the United States, that probably makes you think of underwear because the most famous brand product called Hanes is Hanes underwear.
but Haynes is shaking in their shorts. They have great fear that in the future, when you hear the word Haynes, you are going to think about hummus. And here's the story. The Canadian hummus maker behind Haynes Hummus says he refuses to shut down his small business after Haynes Brands Incorporated, the underwear manufacturer, threatened to sue for trademark violation and demanded that he destroy his products. Haynes Brands sent a letter to Haynes Hummus. The letter said that Haynes Brands Inc. objects to Petros, who is the owner of Haynes Hummus, use of the mark Haynes Hummus in his application to register the name in the U.S. and Canada. The company required response by December 16 in its request to cease and desist from all use of the mark Haynes Hummus and withdraw its pending trademark applications. Petros's attorney, Nathan Dooley, wrote a three-page letter to Haynes Brands with 36 pages of supporting case law, saying that he disagrees with Haynes Brands' conclusion that consumers will confuse the hummus maker with the apparel brand. In reality, no rational person who is familiar with Haynes Hummus could possibly allege any confusion between Haynes Hummus and HBI's mark or HBI's product. How does Haynes Brands Incorporated describe its, its uh, corporation on its website? Quote, we sell bras, panties, shapewear, sheer hosiery, men's underwear, children's underwear, socks, t-shirts, and other active wear in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and other leading markets in the Americas, Asia, and Europe. In the United States, we sell more units of intimate apparel, male underwear, socks, shapewear, hosiery, and t-shirts than any other company. And how does Haynes Hummus describe its company on Facebook? Haynes Hummus is raising the standard of what delicious hummus tastes and looks like. Guaranteed you have never tasted hummus this good. Anybody that is going to confuse those two companies that describe themselves in those two very different ways, I think is not paying any attention whatsoever. Uh, I don't think that Haynes Brands has a very good case to argue. So I don't know where this will go. Hopefully Haynes Brands will drop their challenge to Haynes Hummus and let this small hummus company continue marketing its product. And that's just yeah. the way it is. McDonald's pulls Mick resource website after noticing it suggests employees not eat fast food. A story from Consumerist by Chris Moran. From telling minimum wage earners they should relieve stress by taking at least two vacations a year to giving advice on how to file for welfare benefits. The McDonald's McResource website and hotline for employees has been under fire in recent months for being out of touch with the workers it is supposed to help. 
Now comes the news that the site has been pulled down temporarily, but only after McDonald's realized that it recommends people not eat fast food. I do take a little, a little, or I challenge this opening a little bit here because um, it says McDonald's has been under fire for being out of touch with the workers it is supposed to help, um, which I don't think is, is wrong. But the things that it was suggesting on its Make Resource website, um, aside from taking two vacations a year, um, were things that were beneficial for its employees. How to file for welfare benefits is something that's beneficial for its employees. And not to eat too much fast food is also something that's beneficial for its employees. So um, despite being maybe hypocritical because they are selling the product that they're suggesting that their employees should not consume too much of, and they're paying their employees so little that many of their employees qualify for welfare benefits, those are the things that I think they should be rightly challenged for. Um, but not that they were telling the their workers that there were resources um, available. Um, but back to the story. Listing fast food under the heading of unhealthy choice, the McResource site said that while picking up a meal at the drive-thru is, quote, convenient and economical for a busy lifestyle, fast foods are typically high in calories, fat, saturated fat, sugar and salt, and may put people at risk for becoming overweight. It was this revelation that a McDonald's website would effectively be telling people to not eat McDonald's all the time that finally drove the fast food giant to shut the site down. Quote, a combination of factors has led us to reevaluate and we've directed the vendor to take down the website read the statement from McDonald's, between links to irrelevant or outdated information, along with outside groups taking elements out of context, this created unwarranted scrutiny and inappropriate commentary. None of this helps our McDonald's team members. A recent study showed that a majority of fast food workers in the U.S. receive some sort of public benefits leading some to argue that these companies are using welfare and other programs to effectively subsidize the wages they pay to their employees to the tune of nearly $4 billion a year that comes from taxpayers. And I think that's where the real important story is. Um, I don't think the, the story is McDonald's is, is providing information to their employees on how to apply for welfare benefits. I think the story is... McDonald's is paying its employees so little or giving its employees so few hours that the employees can't survive on their income and need additional benefits um, provided through state and federal assistance. And another thing. A story from Nick Bauman, published in MotherJones.com. In a lapse that national security experts call baffling, a high-ranking FBI agent filed a sensitive internal manual 
detailing the Bureau's secret interrogation procedures with the Library of Congress, where anyone with a library card could read it. The 70-plus page manual ended up in the Library of Congress thanks to its author, an FBI official who made an unexplainable mistake. This FBI supervisory special agent who once worked as a unit chief in the FBI's counterterrorism division registered a copyright for the manual in 2010 and deposited a copy with the U.S. Copyright Office where members of the public can inspect it upon request. So there is a internal sensitive manual detailing the Bureau's secret interrogation procedures that was deposited at the Library of Congress where people could view it. Julian Sanchez, a fellow with the Libertarian Cato Institute who has studied copyright policy, had this to say. Do they not cover this in orientation? Sensitive documents should not be placed in public repositories. And, by the way, they aren't copyrightable. How do you even get a clearance without knowing this stuff? Oh my gosh. From techland.time.com by Doug Ameth. The smart charge looks like an ordinary LED light bulb, except it's got a built-in rechargeable battery. When the power to your house is working, as it should, the smart charge acts as just another light bulb, while topping off its internal battery using your home's wiring. When the power goes out, however, the bulb will keep working for up to four hours. And what's more, it will remember the last position of the light switch that's controlling it. So if you turned off the light before you left the house and the power goes out while you're at work, when you get back home, you'll still have four hours of juice stored up. You can see the feature in action in a video on YouTube. Look for the smart charge light. Uh, I think this is a brilliant product. It started as a Kickstarter. The Kickstarter time frame is over and it did fund. Um, it can, you can find more details about the Smart Charge light bulb at smartchargelight.com. But it's a, a great invention that will, uh, you know, help provide light when your power goes out. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. Then let's go ahead and move on. A member of the White House Review Panel on NSA Surveillance said he was absolutely surprised when he discovered the agency's lack of evidence that the bulk collection of telephone call records had thwarted any terrorist attacks. Quote, it was, huh? Hello? What are we doing here? said Jeffrey Stone, a University of Chicago law professor, in an interview with NBC News. The results were very thin. While Stone said the mass collection telephone call records was a, quote, logical program from the NSC's perspective, one question the White House panel was seeking to answer was whether it had actually stopped, 
quote, any terror attacks that might have been really big. We found none, said Stone. Under the NSA program, first revealed by ex-contractor Edward Snowden, the agency collects in bulk the records of the time and duration of phone calls made by persons inside the United States. Stone was one of five members of the White House review panel and the only one without any intelligence community experience. That this week produced a sweeping report recommending that the NSA's collection of phone call records be terminated to protect Americans' privacy rights. The panel made, <clears throat> the panel made that recommendation after concluding that the program was quote, not essential in preventing attacks. In one little-noticed footnote in its report, the White House panel said the telephone records collection program, known as Section 215, based on the provisions of the U.S. Patriot Act that provided the legal basis for it, had made, quote, only a modest contribution to the nation's security. The report said, that, quote, there has been no instance in which the NSA could say with confidence that the outcome of a terror investigation would have been any different, unquote, without the program. Oh, no. Tax, accidental tax break saves wealthiest Americans $100 billion. That's the title of this story. However, if there's a tax break for wealthy Americans, you better believe it wasn't accidental. You better believe that somebody put it there for a good reason, and that good reason is to save the wealthiest Americans more money. This story is from Bloomberg.com by Zachary Midler. No, Zach Zachary... Miter, M-I-D-E-R. Sheldon Adelson makes no secret of his disdain for the estate tax. Quote, how many times do you have to pay taxes on money? The casino magnet asks, leaning on a blue cane on the cobblestones of Wall Street on a crisp October morning. A gravel-voiced man whose accent recalls his blue-collar Boston roots, Adelson, has just rung the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Shares of his Las Vegas Sands Corp are at a five-year high, making him one of the world's richest men, worth more than $30 billion. Federal law requires billionaires such as Allison who want to leave fortunes to their children to pay estate or gift taxes of 40% on those assets. Adelson has blunted that bite by exploiting a loophole that Congress unintentionally created and that the Internal Revenue Service unsuccessfully challenged. By shuffling his company stock in and out of more than 30 trusts, he's given at least $7.9 billion to his heirs while legally avoiding about $2.8 billion in U.S. gift taxes since 2010. Hundreds of executives have used the technique, SEC filings show. These tax shelters may have cost the federal government more than $100 billion since the year 2000, says Richard Covey, the lawyer who pioneered the maneuver. That's equivalent to about one-third of all estate and gift taxes the U.S. has collected since then. 
The popularity of the shelter, known as the Walton Granter Retained Annuity Trust, or GRAT, shows how easy it is for the wealthy to bypass estate and gift taxes. Facebook Chief Executive Officer Mark Zuckerberg and Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs Group, are among the business leaders who have set up GRATS, SEC filing show. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company helps so many clients use the trusts that the bank has a special unit dedicated to processing GRAT paperwork. So the estate tax that is heavily bemoaned by many Republicans and many wealthy individuals who owe estate taxes has a giant loophole that large numbers of people are using to avoid paying the estate taxes they otherwise would owe. It's not their fault that there's a loophole, though some of them may have had a hand in making sure that loophole existed. It's the government's fault, it's the Congress's fault for not closing the loophole. No one should pay more taxes than are required, but everyone should pay the taxes that are required. And if there are bad laws out there, then those laws need to be fixed. Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes stuff does happen, and when a Brooklyn resident was walking in Central Park in New York with a friend, a mugger held the two at gunpoint. But after that Brooklyn resident handed over his three-year-old Windows flip phone, the robber took one look at it and gave it back. Once he saw my phone, he looked at it like, What the F is this? and gave it back to me, the 25-year-old recalled. I guess he didn't think he could get anything for it, he added. The mugger and his accomplice fled before the cops could catch them. I'm not kidding you. A story by Connor Simpson on TheWire.com. According to a new report from Der Spiegel on the National Security Agency's top team of hackers, the agency intercepts electronics purchased online before delivery to install malware and other spying tools. The NSA's Tailored Access Operations, or TAO, division is responsible for the biggest hacks we've learned about in the last year. When a world leader's cell phone is hacked by the NSA, the TAO team is responsible. They're the hackers who can access anyone, anywhere, under any condition. TAO hackers can track your digital movements remotely by exploiting security flaws in an operating system, like Windows, for example. But when the newfangled remote access hacking strategies don't work, the NSA goes old school. The agency's most skilled team of hackers does not always work from behind a computer screen. Occasionally, a target must be physically intercepted before the NSA can access their information. In these instances, TAO waits for the target to order new electronics, 
when their surveillance system alerts that Target X just bought a new laptop, the TAO intercepts the mail order and has the computer delivered to an NSA facility. They open up the package and install their malware technology onto the Target's new computer. The product is then repackaged and sent along its merry way. So a secret way that the NSA has been gathering surveillance on specific targets when they found their other methods have not been as effective as necessary. How else is the NSA gathering information on targets? Well, they're playing World of Warcraft. According to documents leaked by Edward Snowden and brought to light by The Guardian, the NSA has been monitoring online gaming communities since 2008 and has even been sending real-life agents into online RPGs, role-playing games, posing as players. Xbox Live was apparently one of the biggest services to be targeted, while World of Warcraft and Second Life also came under some degree of scrutiny. It's not totally clear why the NSA, along with its UK equivalent, the GCHQ, thought such operations were necessary, but there seems to have been a general sense that online games could be used as communications hubs by evildoers, as well as some evidence that Hezbollah had developed its own game for the purpose of recruitment. None of the leaked files suggest that the agent avatars caught any terrorists, even though undercover operations were apparently so numerous that at one point an NSA analyst called for a deconfliction group to be set up to prevent the agency's personnel from inadvertently spying on each other. Meanwhile, Microsoft and Linden Labs have refused to comment, but Blizzard Entertainment has said it was unaware of any surveillance taking place in World of Warcraft and certainly has never granted any permission for its players to be observed. The Guardian says it'll publish the relevant files in partnership with the New York Times and ProPublica. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. A company in Chicago named Aon Financial has purchased thousands of liens in property liens in D.C., Maryland, Kentucky, Iowa, and Ohio. The stories calls the company Chicago-based, but that's just where the company's mailboxes are. And this uh, story was written by Chris Moran from Consumers as well. In recent years, Aon has purchased thousands of liens in various states and in D.C., making a profit by tacking on substantial legal and other fees to the usually small lien amount. Like one D.C. resident who found out he owed $500 on a condo parking space, not even the condo, after lien notices had mistakenly been sent to the previous owner. He went to pay the $500, but then he found the debt had been sold to Aon, A-E-O-N, and the company now wanted $4,200, more than eight times the original debt, to cover its legal fees. And thus a two-year legal battle began with a judge ultimately deeming 
the $4,200 bill excessive and unnecessary before knocking it down to $952. The City Attorney General for D.C. filed suit against Aon in 2009, claiming it was charging abusively high legal fees to consumers. That case is still pending. Lawyers for the city have been trying to suss out for years who exactly owns the company. But Aon has repeatedly fought back, asking the court for protective order to prevent it from being compelled to turn over financial documents that would reveal the ownership. Quote, this is debt collecting that leads to the destruction of the lower economic level of the community, said former D.C. Attorney General Peter Nichols. Anyone who would be behind that kind of a scheme, and it was a well-thought-out scheme, I don't think they would be very happy about their names being disclosed to the public record. One of the biggest deals ever in the history of ever. Getty Images is dropping the watermark for the bulk of its collection in exchange for an open embed program that will let users drop in any image they want as long as the service gets to append a footer at the bottom of the picture with a credit and link to the licensing page. For a small-scale WordPress blog with no photo budget, this looks like an awful lot like free stock imagery. It's a real risk for the company, since it's easy to screenshot the new versions if you want to snag an unlicensed version. But according to Craig Peters, a business development exec at Getty Images, that ship sailed long ago. Quote, Look, if you want to get a Getty image today, you can find it without a watermark very simply, he says. The way you do that is you go to one of our customer sites and you right-click. Or you go to Google Image Search or Bing Image Search and you get it there. And that's what's happening. Our content was everywhere already. Peters' bet is that if web publishers have a legal free path to use the images, they'll take it, opening up a new revenue stream for Getty and photographers. The new money comes because once the images are embedded, Getty has a much more Getty has much more control over the images. The new embeds are built on the same iframe code that lets you embed a tweet or a YouTube video, which means the company can use embeds to plant ads or collect user information. And while that may sound onerous um, for them to be collecting user information, it works the same way a YouTube embedded video will work on another site. So there are links back to the original video location and in making that connection the owner of the image will then be able to collect some data on the image's use and who is viewing the image and that will provide them some opportunities to give credit to the photographer and to potentially financially compensate the photographer. Quote, the principle is to turn what's infringing use with good intentions, turning that into something that's a valid licensed use with some benefits going back to the photographer, says Peters. And that starts really with a tr attribution and a link back. I think that Getty is really, really smart in approaching it this way, as they said, um, the, the cat's kind of out of the bag. The images can be pirated and, and used illegally um, or used without license. And 
clearly were often enough that Getty felt that they needed to try to change the game and get what benefit they could and build their business in a different way. And I think that every smart content company needs to start thinking this way is um, how to monetize and achieve benefit um, in different ways as the internet shifts shifts the game in in standard standard copyright and in ownership and in supporting artists the artists that create the work should be supported they should get the benefit um, they're not getting any benefit when someone steals that art from them and there's two ways you can deal with that and and they're not mutually exclusive you can try to punish the people who are stealing that artwork and find various levels of success in doing so um, probably more success if you're a giant company with many lawyers and, and giant bank accounts and a much harder time if you're an individual and the other method is find alternative ways to profit and benefit off of the use of that work it's what uh, creative commons is all about it's it's being more open to sharing and getting the benefits um, in other ways from having your work shared and viewed and read in numerous places online let's get deeper into the conversation hmm interesting bumper choice uh maybe by deeper into the conversation we're kind of uh referring to being in deep doo-doo a story by brian ashcraft on kotaku.com meet korea's most infamous character Poop Man. This is Dong Chimi. If you live in South Korea, you might be familiar with him. The cartoon character is totally into collecting poop, doing poop experiments, and wearing a dung hat, notes the website simply to suitcases. Dong Chimi is friends with flying laxatives and teaches kids about how doo-doo can nourish the soil, and makes plant life possible. He also constantly seems to have a runny nose. However, the cartoon isn't strictly about poop, as Dong Chimi is only one of several bit players in Dalki. The cartoon is aimed at small children and actually centers around the mischievous girl named Dalki. In South Korea, there is also a Dalki theme park. Merchandise featuring the Dong Chimi character is available, including a stuffed plush Dong Chimi doll, complete with partially excreted plush poop. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on. That wasn't it.
a judge rules the TSA no-fly procedures are unconstitutional. This story from BoingBoing.net by Corey Doctorow. Despite a series of disgraceful, dirty tricks, the TSA has lost its case against Dr. Rahina Ibrahim, a Malaysian academic who had been wrongly put on the no-fly list. The DHS engaged in witness tampering, denying Dr. Ibrahim and her witnesses access to the courtroom by putting them on the no-fly list, and argued that neither Dr. Ibrahim nor her lawyers should be allowed to see the evidence against her. The judge came down with this ruling. The plaintiff has standing to challenge the no-fly listing and practices, and all of the government's arguments to the contrary are overruled. Once a plaintiff shows concrete, reviewable, adverse government action has resulted from a government error, she is entitled to a remedy that requires the government to correct its lists and records, quote, and to certify under oath that such corrections have been made. Because the government's current administrative remedies such as they are don't do this, they are unconstitutional. The judge ordered the government to provide that remedy and or disclose whether she is in fact on or off the list. So a small victory in someone challenging their inclusion on the no-fly list where the judge determined they should not have been on the list and that the government had to prove they were removed. That we have complete and utter freedom of speech uh, for the most part. Reuters.com had this story by Jim Finkel. A cybercrime firm uncovered at least six ongoing attacks at U.S. merchants whose credit card processing systems were infected with the same type of malicious software used to steal data from Target Corp. Andrew Komarov, chief executive of the cybersecurity firm Intel Crawler, told Reuters that his company has alerted law enforcement, Visa Inc., and intelligence teams at several large banks about the findings. He said payment card data was stolen in the attacks, though he didn't know how much. Intel Crawler's findings are the latest sign that the cyber attacks disclosed by Target Inc. and upscale department store Neiman Marcus are part of a wider assault on U.S. retailer customer data security. The, government in, the U.S. government and private security intelligence firm iSight Partners warned merchants and financial services firms that the black POS software used against number three U.S. retailer Target had been used in a string of other breaches at retailers, but they did not say how many or identify victims. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. A story from Geekosystem.com by Carolyn Cox. A New Zealand man was attacked by a shark while spearfishing off the coast of New Zealand, but he didn't get a lacerated leg. No, he didn't let a lacerated leg get in the way of a good time. It may sound like the start of a Dos Equis commercial, but that's just how Dr. James Grant rolls. Dr. Grant was enjoying the waters of Colac Bay 
when he felt a tug on his leg and he presumed one of the friends he was spearfishing with was pulling a prank. He got a bit of a shock when he realized the pressure on his leg was instead a shark. What is a good doctor to do when he finds a shark latched onto his leg? Well, of course, like any of us would, he stabbed the shark with a knife. After swimming to shore, Grant discovered that he had sustained deep leg wounds in spite of his thick wetsuit. So, again, as any of us would do, found in the same situation, while his friends continued to fish, Grant sewed up his own cuts using a needle and thread from a first aid kit. After that, he spent some time in the pub before going to the hospital to have his wound tended. I guess when you're a doctor, you understand a lot more about those things, and it uh, feels a little more natural, only a little more natural, to react that way in that situation. I didn't have the guts. A good story from London Review of Books. This one actually was published back in December of 2013, written by Seymour Hirsch. It's in regards to the sarin gas that was used in Syria. Barack Obama did not tell the whole story this autumn when he tried to make the case that Bashar al-Assad was responsible for the chemical weapons attack near Damascus on 21 August. In some instances, he omitted important intelligence, and in others, he presented assumptions as facts. Most significant, he failed to acknowledge something known to the U.S. intelligence community, that the Syrian army is not the only party in the country's civil war with access to sarin, the nerve agent that a U.N. study concluded, without assessing responsibility, had been used in the rocket attack. In the months before the attack, the American intelligence agencies produced a series of highly classified reports culminating in a formal operations order citing evidence that the al-Nusra Front, a jihadi group affiliated with al-Qaeda, had mastered the mechanics of creating sarin and was capable of manufacturing it in quantity. When the attack occurred, al-Nusra should have been a suspect but the administration cherry-picked intelligence to justify a strike against Assad. In his nationally televised speech about Syria on 10 September, Obama laid the blame for the nerve gas attack on the rebel-held suburb of eastern Ghouta firmly on Assad's government and made it clear he was prepared to back up his earlier public warnings that any use of chemical weapons would cross a red line. Quote, Assad's government gassed to death over a thousand people, he said. We know the Assad regime was responsible, and that is why, after careful deliberation, I determined that it is in the national security interests of the United States to respond to the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons through a targeted military strike. Obama was going to war to back up a public threat, but he was doing so without knowing for sure who did what, on the early morning of 21 August. For me, that just brings flashbacks of the 
push to go to war with Iraq based on false and misleading evidence um, or stating of certainty when there was clearly uncertainty about the nature of the evidence um, or the factual basis for the evidence in question. So in this case, uh, Barack Obama borrowed a page from the Bush administration in pushing our military and our country and our people into military action where we may have been aiming at the wrong target. I don't even know where to start. From BuzzFeed.com by Rachel Zarell. Two math majors at Oregon's Reed College lost control of a snowball they built last week, sending it crashing into a dorm building. The snowball was estimated to weigh at least 800 pounds, according to college spokesman Kevin Myers, and was built during a rare snowstorm in Portland, Oregon, that brought a foot of snow. Let me see when this story was dated, because this did not happen last week. This is a story I've had hanging around since February 16. The students have not been punished for the damage, which a maintenance manager told Reed Magazine will cost $2,000 to $3,000 to repair. So kids, be careful. When you're trying to build the biggest snowball that you've ever seen, don't do it at the top of a hill. If there is any kind of life form at the bottom of that hill, or any any kind of um, building or property that can be damaged because you're tempting fate and if you lose control you may severely damage a building a vehicle or a person our children will never know what that's like From Geekology.com, a 27-year-old man tried to feed himself to the white Bengal tigers at the Chengdu Zoo in China. His name was Yang Jinhai. Yang climbed a tree and jumped into the tiger enclosure with the hope that the beast would eat him. They were not interested, no doubt either even further fueling his depression. Quote, I asked them to bite me and let them eat my meat, and so I did not fight back, the 27-year-old told the Chengdu Business Daily. Stunned visitors witnessed how he made exaggerated movements for 20 minutes to tempt the Bengal tigers, but while scratching him and dragging him by the back of his neck, the beasts refused to devour him. Zookeepers finally tranquilized the tigers in order to rescue Yang, who is now being treated for depression. If you listen to 
a lot of podcasts. You may know the name Brian Brushwood. He is uh, part of a few of the podcasts I listen to. Talked about one of his podcasts on an earlier episode, um, Cord Killers. Uh, And he's had um, two special programs now on National Geographic TV. And in one of them, he had a really, really interesting bit um, about smashing a window in a car. And let's see, uh, Gizmodo writer Casey Chan wrote this story up about it. And there's some video in the story as well, which, which tells the story probably a lot better than the words. But here we go. If I had to pick a hammer or a tiny piece of porcelain to shatter a car window, I'd probably think nothing of it and grab the mallet. Nat Geo proves me wrong. A little itty-bitty piece of porcelain chipped off a spark plug does much more damage to a car window and is so much more easy to use, too. You just chuck it at the window. Tempered glass works funny like that. So the video shows the a couple of people um, hammering on a window with a mallet. And it is a rubber mallet. It's not a steel hammer, so... There's a little a little uh, advantage to the window in that specific scenario. But they really go at the window fairly hard with the rubber mallet without any effect. But then they take a small piece, and I mean a really small piece, like under a one-inch square piece, and probably more like a, a half-inch square piece of porcelain that was broken off from a, a spark plug, and just throw that at the side window of this car pretty, pretty, you know, much as hard as they can throw it. And that tiny little piece of porcelain just shatters that tempered glass. So tempered glass is, is very, very effective against a broad impact and is much, much more vulnerable to a really sharp impact where that weight and that pressure is on a very very small area that's why special tools are created to to break out of car windows you'll get some some uh, emergency escape tools that will have a small pointed steel end which would help you smash through that tempered glass so just a really interesting demonstration about tempered glass and how hard it is or how easy it is to break. It's just bad. It's a sign of the end times. Maybe not quite a sign of the end times, but this story from Norway uh, is a little bit depressing. A 10-year-old boy from Doka, Norway, was in the news last week when he drove his parents' car several miles from home with his 18-month-old sister along. He had snuck out while the family was asleep. He drove into a ditch and he flagged down a snowplow for help. The boy told the snowplow driver that he was a dwarf and had ditched the car when his when he turned around to retrieve his forgotten license. It wasn't so funny when the child pulled the same stunt again this week. 
The boy drove off in his aunt's car yesterday, and the police were called. The child made it 19 miles this time before he stopped, and a bystander took his car keys away. The West Opland police weren't as forgiving for the second offense and have reported the family to child services. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. From 9 to 5 Mac, a major TV network has landed on Apple TV in Sweden. A day after the arrival of World Wrestling Entertainment on Apple TV, users of the Apple set-top box in Sweden received access to TV4. TV4 is one of Sweden's largest television networks with both live and scheduled programming. Full episodes of TV4 content are available for seven days following the original air date, and certain older content will always be available. Quote, With TV4 Play on Apple TV, full episodes of current TV4 group shows are available to watch for up to seven days after the original air date. TV4 Play Premium subscribers in Sweden can access an extensive library of additional content with most current and previously aired episodes available for a longer time period. The TV4 Play experience on Apple TV also includes Play Q support, easy access to personalized list of favorite shows, and a resume play option, allowing viewers to pick up watching an episode right where they left off. Select shows are available in HD only through TV4 Play on Apple TV, with the number of available HD shows expected to increase rapidly over the coming months. So something along the lines of a Hulu and Hulu Plus setup for TV4 in Sweden. I think that this just shows Apple's willingness to um, make these types of deals, and I think we'll see a lot more of this in the future. It's great to see some free content provided, probably provided with advertising, um, as well as the paid option, um, which gives more content to the viewer. We live in a very different time now. It may be a very different time, but we may be seeing something from the past coming back again. IGN.com had this story from Jared Larson. Set to air in 2015, Heroes Reborn will be a 13-episode miniseries featuring a standalone arc. It is worth noting that the first Heroes series was originally planned as having a different standalone story arc each season. However, those who watched the 2006 to 2010 run will remember that the show ended up following the first season's characters throughout its lifespan. Though no story details have been revealed, we do know that creator Tim Kring will return to executive produce the miniseries. Also, a digital series will debut prior to Reborn to introduce the main characters. Quote, the enormous impact Heroes had on the television landscape when it first launched in 2006 was eye-opening, said NBC Entertainment President Jennifer Salk in a statement. Shows with that kind of resonance don't come around often, and we thought it was time for another installment. We're thrilled that visionary creator Tim Kring 
was as excited about jumping back into this show as we were, and we look forward to all the new textures and layers Tim plans to add to his original concept. The original Heroes program was enormously well received when it launched. The first season was smart and uh, critics were very satisfied with it. Um, and the second season for most people seemed to fall apart. I, I disagree. I don't disagree completely. I recognize the challenges and the flaws that the series introduced while trying to, from my perspective, um, too many different characters were introduced with too many powers and the focus was lost and the writing just wasn't consistently strong. Um, I did stick through the series. It's probably my second favorite television series of my lifetime. Um, despite its challenges and flaws, uh, I did stick with it through all four seasons um, that it aired. And its stories were still compelling enough um, to, to keep, me, keep me connected. Um, I recently was just looking through Netflix for something to watch, uh, probably a couple weeks ago, and Heroes is there on Netflix, so I rewatched the pilot episode, and having watched the entire series, and this was my first rewatch of the pilot episode, the pilot episode is brilliant. The information, the stuff, the characters, the storylines that are introduced in that pilot really hit the nail on the head and really were very compelling and got the series off to the strong start that, that it got off to. So I am very much looking forward to A Hero's Return. I had wished that that series had not ended when it did. I think it still had a lot more to say and a lot more promise, but agree that it was an uneven series. The only series I want to come back more than Heroes to come back is, of course, if you listen to any of my prior podcasts, Eureka. So seeing Heroes come back, you know, four years after it went off the air, does give me some hope for the future for Eureka. I just don't know what all of these networks like Netflix and Xbox is now doing its original programming, Amazon, and more. I don't know what they're waiting for and why they haven't grabbed Eureka and relaunched Eureka yet. I think you just nailed it. Well, someone who didn't just nail it and they think they might be getting nailed by it is Dropbox. Um, Dropbox has done a couple things. Back in February, Dropbox added some language to their terms of service to prevent themselves from being sued and forcing their users to go into binding arbitration for disputes. This story from Consumerist.com by Chris Moran. Apparently he's my favorite writer from Consumerist this 
week. Another company is taking the coward's way out of resolving legal disputes with its customers by tweaking its terms of service to take away users' rights to take the company to court and prevent multiple users from having their complaints heard as a group. This time it's online storage service Dropbox, which is currently notifying users of the bad news. In a blog post, Dropbox details the latest changes to its terms of service, including the forced arbitration clause. Quote, Arbitration is a faster and more efficient way to resolve legal disputes, lies Dropbox, and it provides a good alternative to things like state or federal courts where the process could take months or even years. Forced arbitration clauses have been on the rise since the 2007 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in AT&T versus Concepcion, in which the telecom giant successfully argued that the inclusion of a few words about binding arbitration buried in the back of a massive contract were sufficient for taking away customers' right to sue or seek a class action against the company. Since then, dozens of major companies, from banks to wireless companies to e-commerce and cable TV, have either added such clauses or tweaked existing language to reinforce how few rights their customers have. Flash forward to this week and a post on blog.dropbox.com. There's nothing more important to us than keeping your stuff safe and secure. It's why we've been fighting for transparency and government surveillance reform and why we've been vocal and public with our principles and values. We should have been clearer that none of this is going to change with Dr. Rice's appointment to our board. And that would be Dr. Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State under George W. Bush, who was very instrumental in our war in Iraq, among many other things. Our commitment to your rights, back to the blog posting, our commitment to your rights and your privacy is at the heart of every decision we make, and this will continue. We're honored to have Dr. Condoleezza Rice join our board. She brings an incredible amount of experience and insight into international markets and the dynamics that define them. As we continue to expand into new countries, we need that type of insight to help us reach new users and defend their rights. Dr. Rice understands our stance on these issues and fully supports our commitments to our users. I've never heard dumber dialogue. <laughs> Scientists accidentally discover how to stop or start pain using light. I've been in a lot of pain lately uh, with arthritis and back pain. Um, so this really caught my eye. I think it's an incredibly interesting concept and a really, really interesting method. But the testing they used and did on live animals makes me cringe.
that all said, here is what these scientists have discovered. Researchers have discovered that light can be used to create or end pain. And that's exciting and terrifying news. A study published this week in Nature Biotechnology explains how scientists at Stanford's BioX lab accidentally stumbled on their ability to end pain as we know it while researching light's impact on muscle movement in mice. The team had inserted proteins called opsins into the nerves of the mice and then waited several weeks until the mice's nerves were light sensitive to begin their tests. During the course of their research, they realized that different shades of light also seemed to impact the mice's pain neurons. Some shades stopped pain altogether, while others increased it, says Scott Delp, co-author of the study and owner of the lab. We thought, wow, we're getting pain neurons. That could be really important. Adam Clark Estes nicely summarizes the study's significance. Quote, this bears huge implications in a number of fields, from neuroscience to psychology, and could help millions of people who suffer from chronic pain. So, really, really interesting discovery of how to make pain receptors react positively or negatively to light. So, as, as far and as much as this may provide some huge steps forward if developed and effective in managing pain. The part that's a little bit unsettling is that that same light in a different shade can also cause pain. Um, so you better believe that uh, the military will be working on its own uses for light-induced pain. It is inane and terrible. Well, that part of it is certainly inane and terrible. The, the beneficial parts uh, could be amazing. So Apple rolled out in iOS 7 last fall a new system called iBeacon. iBeacon is making a pretty rapid transition into the mainstream. Stores like Apple, Macy's, American Eagle in market and bars all adopting it, as well as non-retail applications like Major League Baseball Parks. If you're not familiar with it, um, iBeacon is a system which when you walk into an area, walk into a, a, something like a retail store that's equipped with these iBeacons, you'll be invited to allow alerts to be sent to your phone. If you say yes, the store will be able to send you messages and invite you to view content based on anything it knows about you and based on your location in the store. So the author of this story, who I'm not sure who it is, but the story was on 9to5Mac, asks this question. 
Will iBeacon Alerts be a welcome way to add value to our visit or just a new form of spam? It's not spam. Spam. My own view is it will very much depend on how intelligently retailers implement the system and that personalization is the key. What is the author most interested in as a benefit? Um, any store-wide offers that are going on, like you can save 10% off your purchase today, any specific product offers that are relevant to the author, any brand new products that are relevant to the author based on their history and their likes and what they've purchased before, or information on the specific product that they're looking at at the time, what the author is afraid of seeing, Quote, but what I don't want to receive are offers on random products just in news on products that are of no interest to me and links to product information just because I walked past a display. So some really interesting technology in iBeacons. There's some interesting uses even beyond retail. And But this is going to all depend on how good the retailer or other entity deploys it and how carefully they deploy it, whether it becomes a useful new thing or a, a terribly invasive new thing. The good, the good part is right now, um, it's not automated. You don't walk in and get bombarded with, with messages. Um, the implementations so far have been through custom apps so you would need to basically get the app for the store or get the app for the major league baseball park so you're opting in at that point and as long as retailers and other entities make this an opt-in process i think that it will be effective so long as each each one of them doesn't execute in a poor way. Um, if the system evolves into one that is not opt-in, but one that you need to opt out of, I think it will fail. It will, it will become the spam that the author here fears. I read about one really, really interesting use of iBeacon. There is a museum that has a display on landmines and the landmines are buried iBeacons and either on your own device or on a device provided by the museum you explore the minefield and you try to clear the minefield or determine the locations of the mines without blowing the mines up. Um, really really interesting use and I think that's where iBeacons can get very very interesting is these out-of-the-box out-of-the-retail um, experiences that iBeacon might be able to provide. I'm gonna move on now. Story by Carolyn Cox from Geekosystem. Com. 
California lice expert Marcy McQuillan knows you love taking pics with your friends, and she says that sure it's all fun and games until someone has to boil their hair off. Yes, although usually lice is just the scourge of the very young children, McQuillan has seen an increase in incidents with teenagers, and she thinks it's that dang social media. McQuillan explained, I've seen a huge increase of lice in teens this year. Typically, it's younger children I treat because they're at higher risk for head-to-head -head contact. But now teens are sticking their heads together every day to take cell phone pics. Every teen I've treated, I ask about selfies, and they admit that they are taking them every day. I think parents need to be aware, and teenagers need to be aware, too. A dire prediction of a lice epidemic due to selfies. I think that this uh, this danger, when it was out, and this was out a, a while back, um, it hit the news. I saw it in several different locations. I think that the uh, danger was overstated. There may be an uptick. There may be an increase. And it may even appear to be a dramatic increase because I think the instance of lice in these older older teenagers or older children is on the low side to begin with. So even a significant increase doesn't mean there's a significant overall number total. Um, so I think the uh, the dangers overstated while, where, while it may be real, uh, the increase may be real in and of itself. I don't think there's huge fears in taking selfies. And by the way, uh, Scott Johnson recently explained on Twitter, you shouldn't be able to get lice from this. Well, he didn't, he didn't explain it in this way. What he explained was selfies are pictures of yourself. If you're taking a selfie, then there shouldn't be anyone else in the picture. So a selfie should not be able to spread lice. What you've got is a groupie. Groupies are pictures taken of a group by one of the individuals in that group. So like that picture that, uh, that Ellen was credited with, even though she wasn't holding the camera, from, from that awards show, whatever that was, Academy Awards or something. Uh, she was credited with taking the most famous selfie pic that was the most tweeted pic on Twitter. And it wasn't a selfie because it was a group, so it was a groupie. End of discussion. Yeah, we got to get some of that. From IGN.com by Jared Larson. Sci-Fi announced that the U.S. adaptation of the British supernatural drama series Being Human is ending with the season four finale this year. In an official press release, the network states, with the second half of Being Human's fourth season set to kick off, our human-at-heart characters are about to embark on a journey full of twists, turns, and surprises that will culminate in a spectacular series finale on Sci-Fi Monday, April 7th. So that series has ended on Sci-Fi. And Sci-Fi went on to say, They've saved the best for last with the final six episodes that revisit the story's beginning, leading to a not-to-be-missed send-off for Aiden, Sally, Josh, 
and Nora, who are all the key characters, a vampire, ghost, and werewolves, respectively. Um, I did not watch and get into the U.S. version of Being Human. I watched a few episodes. Maybe I watched four or five episodes overall, mostly at the beginning of the series. Um, I think I think one day I will watch the entire series. I think it will be compelling enough for me to, to watch through the whole series. Um, most of it is on Netflix, so I may just catch up with it all on Netflix at some point. Um, I watched the British version of Being Human, and it was terrific. I highly recommend, if you've never watched Being Human, watch the British version. If you watched and liked the U.S. version of Being Human and haven't seen the British version, I highly recommend you watch the British version as well. I don't know how the having watched the U.S. version may color your opinion of watching the British version, um, but I thought the British version was great. And in the comparisons I can draw between the two, I watched the entire series uh, from from Britain, um, and again, only only a little bit of the U.S. series. The British version has a, a more humorous underlying tone. It's not a comedy. It's it's still a strong drama, but the the comedic punches are are a little bit better and a little bit stronger and a little bit more consistent in the British version. Um, the actors in the British version are terrific, even when when casts change and develop throughout the series. Um, the new actors brought in uh, are are strong as well. Um, so absolutely, positively, highly recommend you watch Being Human, the British version. While I'm talking about British British TV and British sci-fi shows. If you've never seen it, watch Misfits. Misfits is a great British sci-fi show. Um, it is available on Hulu. I'm not. It's also available on iTunes. I don't know where else it might be available. It's. It. I think Hulu has some exclusive rights to showing Misfits in the U.S. So, uh, watch both of those series. Watch the British version of Being Human, and watch the sh British show Misfits, and if you enjoy sci-fi programming, I think you won't be disappointed by either one. That people watch it and then it's a thing. I hope they do. From the telegraph.co.uk by Catherine Rushton. American regulators have ordered emergency tests on oil extracted from a fracking site in North Dakota, amid fears that it could be dangerously explosive. The probe follows a series of accidents involving crude oil from the Bakken Shale Formation, including one in Quebec last summer, which destroyed a town and claimed 47 lives. The incidents occurred when the oil was being transported from the site by rail and are thought to have been triggered by equipment failures. However, such equipment failures should not have had such severe consequences because oil does not usually explode 
unless it has a higher than normal gas content. The U.S. Department of Transport said on Tuesday that companies transporting the crude oil by rail must test each batch for the temperature at which it boils and catches a light. They must then label it to ensure that potentially explosive oil is treated with extra caution rather than being transported in the most basic fashion allowed by the industry. And that last paragraph said that the U.S. Department of Transport said that on Tuesday, but this story is from February. So this uh, order was put in place quite some time ago, and the companies have missed the deadline claiming that the data collection was taking longer than expected. By saying stuff like this, you're setting yourself up. An environmentally friendly washing machine uses lots and lots of beads to clean your clothes. The Xeros X-E-R-O-S washing machine uses just a cup of water and recycled reusable polymer beads to remove stains from clothes. Many consumers might be critical of a synthetic material being touted as environmentally friendly. Does the amount of water saved by Xeros justify the numbers of chemicals used to create its beads? Xeros beads are recycled and can be used for roughly six months up to 100 washes, depending on how dirty you are. That seems like great news for the environment, especially considering how many chemicals are used in detergent. So these little plastic beads that are created and treated in a specific way um, take the place of the detergent and also significantly reduce the amount of water that's used in the wash as well. So Xeros, the company, explains how their beads pack such a powerful cleaning properties. The polymer beads provide a gentle, uniform, mechanical action on the cloth, aiding the removal of stain and soil. Their hydrophobic nature allows better removal of oily and greasy stains than with water-based systems, and their polar surface chemistry attracts and retains all types of stains as it is transported away from the cloth surface. Some polymers even have the ability to absorb stains into their molecular structure. As a result, great cleaning can be achieved at lower temperatures and with less detergent than has previously been possible. Water acts as a lubricant in the Xeros process rather than as the main wash medium and hence much, much less water is required. Rinse water, too, is reduced as there is less detergent to be rinsed away. The new technology is already saving various hotels and gym facilities big bucks in electricity and water costs and will be available on the wider market in the next couple of years. Look at that! From BusinessInsider.com by Henry Blodgett. Um, business magazines are interesting because their target market are business people. And so sometimes some elements of truth that don't make it into the mainstream or aren't well covered in 
the mainstream, and I don't really even want to call it the mainstream, don't make it into the commercial media and aren't well covered in the commercial media, do get covered in different ways in the business media. So this is from businessinsider.com. The U.S. recovery from the Great Recession is still one of the worst recoveries in history. Why is the recovery so slow and weak? One of the main reasons is that the average American consumers, who account for the vast majority of the spending in the economy, are still strapped. Five years after the recovery began, unemployment remains high, and the Americans who are lucky enough to be working are getting paid less as a percent of the economy than they ever have in history. Meanwhile, America's corporations and their owners have never had it better. Corporate profits just hit another all-time high, both in absolute dollars and as a percent of the economy. And U.S. stocks just hit yet another record. Many people seem confused by this juxtaposition. If corporations and shareholders are making such gargantuan piles of money, why is the economy so crappy? The answer is that one company's employees are the other company's customers. America's, Americans save almost nothing, so every dollar your employees earn in wages gets spent on other companies' products and services, including, in some cases, yours. The less American companies pay their workers, the less American consumers have to spend, and the less American consumers have to spend, the worse the economy is. So corporate profit margins just hit another all-time high. Companies are making more per dollar of sales than they ever have before. And at the same time, wages as a percent of the economy hit another all-time low. Why are corporate profits so high? One reason is that companies are paying employees less than they ever have as a share of GDP, and that in turn is one reason the economy is so weak. Those wages represent spending power for consumers. And this story, which is titled, Why the Economy Sucks, Because American Companies and Their Owners Are Greedier Now Than at Any Time in History, has some interesting charts that show those details um, accompanying the story. So that was on businessinsider.com. And I think points out some really, really strong reasons why our economy is still challenged for so many people. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. Uprocks.com, U-P-R-O-X-X, had this story by Stacy Ritson. A Livingston, Texas kid was suspended for three days and then sentenced to an alternative school for two months after bringing beer to school with him. Sounds somewhat reasonable, no? Also, a kid I would totally have hung out with in high school. And that's not me speaking, that's the author. Except that Chaz Seal got into trouble after accidentally packing the beer in his lunch and then coming clean to his teacher about it. Christy Seal says her 17-year-old son, Chaz, accidentally confused a beer can for a soda can, and he packed it with his lunch. 
Quote, he was in a hurry running late. We were talking about school and he put it all together and took off for school, she said. When he realized his mistake at school, Chaz gave the unopened beer to his teacher, but that teacher then reported it to the principal at Livingston High School, who suspended the boy for three days and then sent him to an alternative school for two months. Ridiculous, ridiculous response to this story, if this is all there is to the story. And as the story is presented, this is all there is. Um, I only can imagine the possibility that there's more to the story that we don't know, because if there is not, then this response is absolutely outrageous to what occurred in this particular inc incident. So uh, if the story facts are all straight and there's not a lot more to the story that hasn't been disclosed, shame on the school uh, school district and superintendent and anyone else involved with this punishment, which absolutely did not fit the crime. One more. So before the the unintended beer story, I talked about that Business Insider article on the current wages being paid being so low as part of GDP. And here's something, an interesting story that is related. Uh, and this was published on thinkprogress.org. Raising the minimum wage to $10.10 an hour would increase the price of a $16 product at Walmart, such as a typical DVD, by just a cent if all the costs were passed on to consumers, according to an analysis by an economist for Bloomberg News. Ken Jacobs, chair of the Labor Center at the University of California, Berkeley, estimates that a minimum wage at that level would add $200 million to Walmart's yearly labor costs, which comes to just eight-tenths of a percent of what it currently spends. That also represents just six one-hundredths of a percent of the company's billions in yearly sales. Jacobs told Think Progress. Jacobs told Think Progress. So if the company decided to pass the entire cost increase onto its consumers, it would mean an extra penny for a $16 product. An increased wage could increase its sales as workers would have more money in their pockets to spend on its products, which could mitigate the costs involved. A $10.10 minimum wage would give 16.5 million workers across the country $31 billion more in earnings. And that $31 billion would go back into our economy. It would be spent, instead of ending up in profits for a stockholder, that money would be in the worker's pocket. And the money that's in the worker's pocket does not stay in the worker's pocket for very long because they spend it on fulfilling their needs in the system we have. Realizing that the benefits are likely to outweigh the cost, one mega retailer recently took voluntary action. 
Gap announced that it would raise its hourly minimum wage to $10 by June of 2015. Gap chairman and CEO Glenn Murphy said of the move, quote, Our decision to invest in frontline employees will directly support our business and is one that we expect to deliver a return many times over. Lawmakers are also pushing to require all businesses to pay at least $10.10 an hour. President Obama has thrown his support behind that level, and a bill was introduced last year, although Republicans unanimously voted it down. That wage would be, the $10.10 wage, would bring it in line with where it would be if it had kept up with inflation, although far behind what it would be if it had kept up with increasing productivity. Productivity has increased so dramatically since the 70s, and wages have stagnated since the 70s, that the productivity that workers supply now are extraordinarily drastically undervalued by the amount of money that they get paid. So, and increasing that amount of money, increasing that minimum wage to $10.10 would have a very, very minimal impact on costs that the companies would either have to bear or would pass along to consumers to provide their workers with a more reasonable wage. This happened. Apple TV generated more than $1 billion in hardware and content sales last fiscal year, CEO Tim Cook just revealed. That makes Apple TV the company's fastest-growing product, according to estimates by analyst Horace Didu. Apple has long referred to its set-top box for television sets as a hobby, since it still pales in comparison to phones and computers. But as sales grew, Apple TV was more recently upgraded to a, quote, beloved hobby. And at Apple's shareholder meeting, Cook said, it's a little more difficult to call it a hobby these days. All told, Daydu estimates that Apple has sold 28 million Apple TVs since the product debuted in 2007. That compares to 8 million set-top boxes sold by its nearest competitor, Roku, since 2008. And it is widely expected that Apple will have a significant update in the next version of Apple TV which I am looking forward to. We live in a very different time now. There is a great story from the site Narratively. It's narrative.ly by Matthew Wolf. Here's a little bit of that story, but it's a longer piece, and I recommend you all check it out. A few years ago, Dr. David Orez bought a giant laser and started charging people to remove their tattoos. The work began as a lucrative sideline to help underwrite services for his low-income clients. A complete erasure can require up to a dozen sessions and cost $3,000. Not long after, one of Dr. Orez's colleagues asked him for a favor. A friend, a former gang member, was desperate for a job but the tops of his fingers were tattooed with the words Baby Crip, 
a deal breaker for most employers. The man wanted the tattoo erased but couldn't afford the treatment. Oras volunteered to remove it for free. Soon, Oras was offering his services gratis to any former gang member or inmate with a tattoo on his face, hands, or neck, places that couldn't be easily obscured by clothing. Now, people come to him seeking to change their lives. Dr. Orr's tattoo removal services are in wide demand. His program, called Fresh Start, is the only one of its kind in the New York area, and one of few like it in the nation. Every week, Orr's receives emails and phone calls from tattooed ex-cons all over the country who have found him on the internet. Few, though, can afford the multiple trips to New York necessary for a full treatment. Most of Orr's new Fresh Start patients are referred to him by a local network of parole officers, social workers, reentry counselors, judges, and military recruiters. So, great story about a doctor who is using his skills to allow people to better their lives and doing so at a, 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 in a way that is not financially unavailable to them. Speaking of financially, uh, people who, who can take care of themselves financially versus those that can't, um, a real quick um, fact from Sanders.Senate.gov, who is Bernie Sanders, that's uh, Bernie Sanders of Vermont's Senate website. Um, the 67 richest people are as wealthy as the world's poorest 3.5 billion people. The hell is wrong with us? Man leaves prison robbed same New Jersey shoe store 15 years later. Uh, I spoke earlier in the show about moving from Vermont. From Vermont, I moved to New Jersey, so my newly adopted home, not home state, my newly adopted state of residence, I'll say. It's the thing about moving from place to place. I find that uh, you don't ever become a local, almost no matter how long you live somewhere, if it's not where you were born. In any event, I digress. Police say a man walked out of a New Jersey prison after serving 15 years for robbing a children's shoe store, and he headed straight back to the same shop and robbed it again. In 1999, 25-year-old Christopher Miller was arrested after he forced employees into the back room of the Stride Wright shoe store on Hooper Avenue in Toms River, tied them up, and fled with the cash. Police say Miller, now 40, took a bus from Atlantic City to Toms River on Saturday and went to the same shoe store. Employees tell police that he entered the store and demanded cash, telling the workers, a teenage boy and a 43-year-old woman, to go to the back room. They refused. And he was caught. Don't think he quite qualifies for the dumbest robber ever. There's a lot of competition in that category, but he at least gets a uh, honorable mention.
the NSA would lose its authority to collect and hold years' worth of telephone calling records, but gain access to cell phone information it currently lacks under an Obama administration proposal aimed at quieting controversy controversy over the spy agency's data archive. I think that's a really well-crafted opening, uh, opening sentence there. Um, this is from the LA Times by Ken Delanian, and I think that's exactly what the proposal is aimed at. The proposal is not aimed at protecting privacy of the citizens. The proposal is really aimed at quieting the controversy over the spy agency's data archive. The plan, which would need congressional approval, would significantly curb what has been the most controversial secret program revealed by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. Currently, the NSA collects most landline calling records and stores them for five years in a database that it periodically searches using telephone numbers connected to terrorists abroad. The new proposal would end the NSA's practice of holding the massive amounts of calling data. Administrative officials hope that would assuage people's concerns that an intelligence agency had access to information that could reveal deeply private information. Under the new arrangement, phone companies would be required to standardize their data and make it available on a continuously updated basis so the NSA could search it for terrorist connections. The NSA would have to obtain a court order for such a search. So they're shifting the storage of the data from themselves to the phone companies, but they're requiring the phone companies to store the data and make the data available in specific formats so the NSA could search through it. So again, to return to the, the first uh, sentence of the story, the proposal is aimed at quieting the controversy over the spy agency's data archive. It is not aimed at enhancing the privacy of American citizens. Mark my words. That will wrap up episode number 15 of Unrelated Things. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, you can check out Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. It's unrelated things.